Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company, and you can find out more by visiting the website, johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. He's also written several uh, books, mainly on past presidents. We'll look forward to visit with Mark about current global affairs. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We'll be talking about lessons from the Telegraph that the Ed Biden administration could learn from. And then Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of Father the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C. It is March the 8th, and on this day in Russia, in 1917, the February, that's right, February Revolution, known as such because the Russians used the Julian calendar at the time, began when riots and strikes over the scarcity of food erupted in Petrograd. One week later, centuries of czarist rule in Russia ended with the abdication of Nicholas II, and Russia took a dramatic step closer towards communist revolution. By 1917, most Russians had lost faith in the leadership ability of the czarist regime. Government corruption was rampant. The Russian economy remained backward, and Nicholas repeatedly dissolved the Duma, the Russian parliament established after the revolution of 1905, when it opposed his will. However, the immediate cause of the February Revolution, the first phase of the Russian Revolution of 1917, was Russia's disastrous involvement in World War I. Militarily, Imperial Russia was no match for industrialized Germany, and Russian casualties were greater than those sustained by any nation in any previous war. Meanwhile, the economy was hopelessly disrupted by the costly war effort, and moderates joined the Russian radical rebel elements in calling for the overthrow of the Tsar. On March the 8th, 1917, demonstrators clamoring for Bread took to the streets in Russian capital of Petrograd, now known as St. Petersburg. Supported by 90,000 men and women on strike, the protesters clashed with police but refused to leave the streets. On March the 10th, the strike spread among all Petrograd workers, and irate mobs of workers destroyed police stations. Several factories elected deputies to the Petrograd Soviet or Council of the Workers' Committees following the, the model devised during the re Revolution of 1905. On March the 11th, the troops of the Petrograd Army garrison were called out to quell the uprising. In some encounters, regiments opened fire, killing demonstrators, but the protesters kept to the streets and the troops began to waver. That day, Nicholas again dissolved the Duma. On March the 12th, the revolution triumphed when regiment after regiment of the Petrograd garrison defected to the cause of the demonstrators. The soldiers, some 150,000 men, subsequently formed committees that elected deputies to the Petrograd Soviet. The immediate government was forced to resign, and the Duma formed a provisional government that peacefully vied with the Petrograd Soviet for control of the revolution. On March the 14th, the Petrograd Soviet issued Order Number 1 
which instructed Russian soldiers and sailors to obey only those orders that did not conflict with the directives of the Soviet. The next day, March 15th, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne in favor of his brother Michael, whose refusal of the crown brought an end to the Tsarist aristocracy. The new provisional government, tolerant, tolerated by the Petrograd Soviet, hoped to salvage the Russian war effort while ending the flood food shortage, and many other domestic crises. It would prove a daunting task. Meanwhile, Vladimir Lenin, leader of the Bolshevik Revolutionary Party, left his exile in Switzerland, crossed Germany-Enemy lines to return home and take control of the Russian Revolution. What's so interesting about this is uh, while they certainly wanted to revolt against the conditions as they were, they weren't revolting for something. They ended up with communist regime and uh, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, the, by comparison, the American Revolution had an ideal in mind, the whole notion that uh, we form government, we are free, and uh, we are creatures of God, and uh, nothing like that occurred in uh, the Soviet Union. Consequently, they ended up with a communist regime that failed, of course, in the 90s. Well, the Florida Department of Health and Human Services reported 75 new deaths on Friday, 85 on Saturday, and just how many on Sunday? There was just 52 cases on Sunday, so and just a few deaths. On March the 3rd, the seven-day average of new cases was 72, and there were 50 hospitalized. So it's really looking good here in Collier County. Things are, uh, the numbers are really dropping precipitously. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a report Friday in which it quietly admitted that mask mandates in the United States were allegedly responsible for less than a 2% decrease in COVID case growth after 100 days, but still the CDC advises wearing masks despite their own numbers. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention stands accused of violating federal law by inflating coronavirus fatality numbers, according to a stunning information obtained by the National File. CDC illegally inflated the COVID fatality number by at least 1,600% as the 2020 presidential election played out, according to a study published by the Public Health Initiative of the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. That's so interesting. By the way, if you're concerned about getting uh, vaccinated, and many people are, they're complaining that they can't be, the FDA admitted that the possible COVID-19 vaccine side effects include Bell's palsy, uh, Julian Barr syndrome, acute disseminated encephalitis, transverse myelitis, multiple sclerosis, optic neuritis, chronic inflammatory uh, demyelitis, uh, encephalitis, myelitis, some of these things I can't even pronounce, but meningitis, encephalopathy, and uh, ataxia, ataxia, so many different uh, possible COVID-19 side effects. I think we should all be aware of this as we're rushing to become vaccinated uh, for coronavirus. On Friday, the February Blockbuster Jobs Report was released with more than 400,000 private sector jobs created, almost triple what had been expected. Big wage gains, a huge rebound in the battered leisure and hospitality industries, and a massive upward revision of the January numbers uh, bring job creation since January up one half million. 
The unemployment rate of 6.2% is about half of what most economists thought it would be back in July when Pelosi came up with her $1.9 trillion potion of economic arsenic. The timing couldn't have been worse for Pelosi. Schumer and Biden, who were hell-bent on careening the American economy over a fiscal cliff, what these numbers proved conclusively was that thanks to the Trump Operation Warp Speed vaccines, the stimulus bill is a godzillion waste of money. So the Dems pretended the report never happened, or in Biden's case, disparaged the good news. Then, within 24 hours, every Democrat in the United States Senate voted lockstep like a parade of robotic Chinese soldiers to approve the $2 trillion Bernie Sanders bill, which we estimate will reduce unemployment by about 5 million jobs over the next several months. I should say not unemployment, it would reduce employment by 5 million jobs. Last week we noted how, how pathetic the modern-day Democrat Party has become. Only the two of the 221 House Democrats voted against the assault against fiscal sanity. Senate Democrats are even worse. Not one broke ranks with Schumer. We don't know if this is cowardice on the part of the 50 Democrats or mere economic illiteracy. We're not even sure what explanation, which explanation would be worse. But nevertheless, they pushed forward with this bill, $1.9 trillion, in spite of the economic good news that demonstrates that uh, certainly not $1.9 trillion is needed, certainly much less than that, if anything. In the meantime, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell seethed. Even uh, liberal experts admit that this is far out of proportion with what's needed right now. With vaccines going into the arms and, and, and economy already primed to roar back, he said, amazingly, Democrats managed to allocate less than 9% of their massive bill to the entire health care response and less than 1% to the vaccinations that will finish the fight. That, according to Mitch McConnell. And then Andrew uh, Cuomo emerged this week from two weeks in hiding to finally answer questions about allegations of sexual harassment and his deadly COVID nursing home policy. Of course, his real motive for holding the news conference was to road test his strategy for remaining as governor despite a chorus of voices calling for him to resign. His first tactic was to make it clear that he's not budging. I was elected by the people of New York. He said, I'm not going to do the job the people of the state elected. I'm going to do the job the people elected me to do, he said. His second play was to make a rare semi-apology for his behavior. I now understand that I acted in a way that made people feel uncomfortable, he said. It was unintentional. Cuomo then played his final card by asking for forgiveness for voters. I've learned an important lesson, he said. Cuomo knows that no one can force him to leave office short of a criminal conviction or impeachment by his own party's legislators. He can take solace in the strange fact and fate and survival of Democrat Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, who wrote out his blackface scandal, which would have crushed any Republican governor. We can't help but wondering where the outrage is from the voters in one of America's most liberal and woke states. A new Quinnipiac poll show finds that a 55 to 40 percent margin New Yorkers don't want him to resign but by a 59% to 36% margin, at least the poll finds the Empire State voters don't want Cuomo to run for fourth term. Interesting stuff. 
He'll probably survive this entire process, but I wonder about uh, the guy in California. It doesn't look like he's in such great shape. He's going to get recalled. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. Coming up, we're going to visit with Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining to choice are the popular Eden Bar, the Intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about this state-of-the-art performing arts center and about the season's exciting productions, visit gulfshoreplayhouse.org. That's gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Golf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. The website is golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written several books, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website, Need to check it out. It's great for kids of all ages, including you and I. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Mark. So, Mark, uh, let's start off by you, you of course, are in uh, Tel Aviv right now. And uh, let's start off by just talking about what's happening in Israel, the elections, as well as the coronavirus. Okay, the two are somewhat 
tied together. We're two weeks before Israeli elections, and as everyone predicted, two weeks beforehand, they opened up everything. All the restaurants, wedding halls, everything was open simultaneously. Hmm. Theoretically, only to people who have already been vaccinated. We've reached the point where uh, we're pushing over 50% of the population has now been vaccinated. If you consider the fact that kids under 16 can't be vaccinated, we're probably around 75 to 80% of those who are eligible to be vaccinated. So what they've done is they've set up that you can eat indoors only if you're vaccinated. You can go to a wedding only if you're vaccinated, but you can eat outdoors regardless. And we'll see how that's um, how that's um, uh, carried out. So is, there, is everybody carrying a vaccination card? You have a vaccination card. You have it on your phone. Basically, you can you know it's like you take a picture of the vaccination card. There is a there's a, um, hmm. there's a um, QR code that has to be read to make sure it's valid. Um, you get it one week after you've gotten the second dose of, which, of we, everyone in Israel got the Pfizer, so it's the one week after you've gotten the second dose of the Pfizer, you can get it. So I'm drawing um, the, the, the inference I'm drawing then is is that somehow and the uh, this is politically related the uh, freeing up the economy with the elections. Right, absolutely. It's two weeks before the elections, um, Netanyahu's big claim is that he got all the vaccines and therefore only he can get the vaccines. And no one else could have gotten the vaccine. Um, we'll have to see. There's a lot of anger in Israel that's mostly aimed um, at the ultra-Orthodox because they didn't keep many of the different uh, issues in terms of uh, distance, and they had big events and everything else, and they were the cause of a lot of the uh, infection rate. And Netanyahu is very closely aligned with the ultra-Orthodox. He's tied to them completely. And so... Not at all clear whether what's going to happen in this election. Very, very unknown. Most people don't really know who they're going to vote for, mm. which two weeks beforehand is very unusual, to say the least. A um, lot, a lot of parties play, running. He's being challenged from the right. He's being challenged from the left, center. Uh, we'll have to see what happens. So how's this can lead to get the fact that he's he's under indictment and his the the beginning of the taking of evidence part of his trial begins uh, a week and a half after the election. Interesting. Well, it's strange times in Israel. Uh, before I let you, before we change topics, any comments about what's happening worldwide with regard to coronavirus? Yeah. So what's happened? I mean, numbers are definitely down. They've been down for about the last six or eight weeks. They seem to have plateaued recently. In other words, the decrease that was going on worldwide has leveled off, both in the United States and the rest of the world. Um, it would seem the Europeans are having a really hard time vaccinating. No one really understands why, except for England. They're having a hard time. They're low on. They're taking a long time to vaccinate. The United States in the last month has really set up its vaccination efforts, and of course, like I told you, Israel is almost all done already with vaccinating the population. Um, so, um, you know, the hope is in any of these given countries is that once seventy to eighty percent of the country is vaccinated, we'll all reach herd immunity if we reach herd immunity, the virus will die. The fear of everyone has is that a variant will come by that will will not work, that the, excuse me, the vaccines will not be effective again. So that's the worry. There's the hope. And we have, I would say, over the next 60 to 90 days, we'll know where we stand. 60 to 90 days, either we'll have beat the virus more or less than most of the world, or we'll be heading for the next round. So... Let's hope for the best part. Hope for the best indeed. So let's move to uh, what's happening in Myanmar. It looks like the uh, the military is willing to turn on its people. 
the, the military is turning on its people, but the people aren't giving up. It's a really interesting situation. The people had a taste of democracy after all these years of military rule. They're not willing to give it up. Uh, they are um, they are fighting back, and not in terms of fighting, but they're demonstrating. They don't seem to. You know, I would say they don't mind, don't mind being killed, but they're willing to take a risk of being killed by the military. And so the demonstrations continue day after day, and the military is using deadly force. Um, so we'll have to see where that goes. Um, again, the United States has taken strong sanctions against the leaders of Myanmar. I'm not really sure where the Chinese and some of the other countries are relating to that, which is always the problem. You know, the United States can take whatever sanctions it wants, but if the Chinese don't buy in, then... Um, doesn't do a lot of good these days. Yeah, so what's the relationship between China and Myanmar at this point? They've generally had friendly relations, and of course they like strong men rule. Mm -hmm. Remember, you know, Chinese, the Chinese are not a Chinese, you know, they're officially called communist, it's not Chinese communist, it's Chinese strong rule uh, government, and so they like other strong rulers, military or otherwise. So there is a, there is a good relationship from what I can understand between the, gov the new government, shall we say, and the Chinese. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a real challenge, like everything else. Uh, the pullback from democracy, you know, that's been, we've also seen it in parts of Eastern Europe. We saw it in Turkey. We saw it in Hungary. That's extent we have in Poland. All of these places where the people have moved away from overall democratic values. Um, we'll see how, how this shakes out. Will the belief in democracy overwhelm these dictators, or will the dictators gain the upper hand? And Recently, it's been the dictators getting the upper hand. So, yeah, unfortunately. So, look, uh, Mike. Oh, now, Mark, we have so much more to talk about. Can you stick around? Absolutely, Bob. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the uh, Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. <laughs> Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me, and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com. 
Tom to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-389 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. It's a moral imperative. And you can find out more by visiting uh, thefga.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with uh, Jim McTagg, Right now we have with us again Mark Schumann, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Mark, I understand, and I, I haven't read about this personally, but I understand there's been a Chinese hack. Absolutely. Um, a Chinese hack using Microsoft Server, getting in service software, it's called. That's what I call the Microsoft Server. They've, they found the backdoor into it, and I think there are a couple of hundred thousand different uh, businesses and government agencies that use Microsoft Server. And so it's not as quite as big as the Russian hack, um, but it's significant and very serious. So now we found, you know, in the last you know, in the last two months, we found out first about this tremendous Russian hack to our computer systems, and uh, the second one now, of course, by, um, by the Chinese. It underlies two sets of problems. In other words, we've always relied on the fact that the United States has the best hackers in the world, mm -hmm. and the NSA have the best, and therefore no one's going to hack us because we can do significant damage the other way. Um, hasn't really worked out that well at this point, and the question becomes, where do we go from now? There is no coordinated national uh, cyber defense um, position, so to speak. I mean, there's a position in the NSA, but there's no, there's no command in the same sort of way as there's the NSA is responsible for attacking. Uh, so. The United States is also the most vulnerable country in the world when it comes to um, to hacking because, um, you know, so much of our lives is so computerized today that we have so many points of entry. And also, keep in mind, one of the biggest problems that we have is so little of what we use in the computer systems is actually manufactured in the United States. Mm -hmm. And that always presents a, a potential problem, let's put it that way. It doesn't necessarily, but it presents a potential problem, in other words. What happens if you have a computer computer that's made um, by, for sake of argument, Apple in China? I mean, IBM makes in China too, etc. Can we guarantee that the Chinese aren't somehow putting some sort of backdoor in the chip? Well, not in the chip because they don't make the chips, but you know, wherever it might be, right on the board. So these are all big problems, and you know, this is like this this push and shove of, of we want open global trade, and it's good for everybody economically. Um, but on the other hand, in terms of national security, when cyber is our single biggest vulnerability um, in any you know any way you want to look at it, uh, can we afford to have this situation where so much of our infrastructure is built overseas? And the second point is, of course, that the uh, th this could be eleven-year-old kids. It's not necessarily uh, trained military. No, these things are not eleven-year-old kids. No, no, no. Eleven-year-old kids don't do these sort of things. These require. Um, for instance, the Russian hack, they estimate that 1,000 people worked on it. Uh -huh. And it was over a period of two years. These are sort of things that only... In other words, an 11-year-old kid might be able to get into your bank account, maybe. Yeah. Uh -huh. 
But to get into the level where these things have gone, this is not you know crashing into someone's account. This is literally getting into the uh, into the underworks of these softwares um, uh, that Microsoft developed, and the other one was in terms of the security software. These are things that not eleven-year-old kids don't do. Gotcha. How brilliant eleven-year-old kids are doing, and not some fat guy sitting on a bed. These are state actors that have the money, have the time. Time is really the key because. Uh, an 11 year old kid or even a 25 year old who's trying to make a payday doesn't have a, you know the two years to break into a system the same way that a state actor does all right thanks for clarifying that mark so uh, just in in your own mind what's the liability here for those that have been hacked for those that might be vulnerable at this point uh, well first of all look the assumption has to be that um, anyone's data is now available to the Chinese and the Russians at this point on top of which, the, the real concern, I think, is, is what they can do with the systems. In terms of we depend on these systems for, our, you know, whether it's the controls in, uh, in power plants, whether it's electrical grid, and all these different things. And they all run on, uh, on one version or another of these, the software. So those are things that we really have to be concerned about, uh, besides the fact that all of our data is open and been stolen, and assuming it's been stolen. Yeah. Um, so don't, you know, if, if you have private data, Whatever you have, change it, do something to it. Whatever it is, it's available uh, to these people. Maybe they don't care. They don't, the, the state actors really don't care uh, about Bob Harden's bank account, frankly. Right. Um, on the other hand, if you were working for the CIA, they might really care about your bank account. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's, you know, quite frankly, I mean, we're, we're entering to an age right now that just so that conventional warfare is perhaps by the by. It's We're, we're taking a look at uh, ways that uh, we're actually in a rock fight, living in a glass. Absolutely, absolutely. In other words, we have to do some serious thinking. Um, yeah, it's really great to have the latest and greatest fighters, and maybe we need the latest and greatest fighters that cost us, you know, 150 million dollars. But if a if a state actor can spend four million dollars and two years and break into our whole systems without you know, without crossing the Atlantic in any which way, right. and maybe we need to rethink, you know, what we do is overall. And, so, you know, one of the biggest problems we always have is the fact that no one is willing to do a zero-based budget of anything. Right. Well, well, quite frankly, if we're talking about some sort of an infrastructure project, which is one of the things I think on President Biden's uh, wish list, it doesn't necessarily mean roads and roadways and uh, bypasses that we're talking about uh, somehow, some way improving improving the grid and creating uh, strength within our uh, our internet infrastructure infrastructure. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's part of the question. You know, we, we, part of his thing is is also redoing our electric grid. Yeah, yeah. So the electric grid um, is something that's old. And doesn't allow for we lose a lot of electricity when we transmit electricity from one part of the country to the other, and of course, if we have a better electric grid, um, it'll be more efficient. And when one part of the country needs more electricity, it'll be much easier to transmit it there. You may recall that. Look, we haven't we haven't spent money on these things for a long, long time, and we have to think about where is the most useful place to spend it. So you may recall a couple of years ago there was an attack, and I don't recall by whom, but it was in a, in some sort of a. Uh, a station, an electrical station in California. Uh, is that relevant in at all to what's happening right now? Yes, it is. I mean, again, I if I was designing any of these facilities, I would make sure that they're not connected to the internet in any which way. But that's not the reality. Yeah. 
Interesting. So, I mean, I know certain army systems that are completely, there's no way you can connect between the army and, and the internet, and therefore it's almost impossible to hack into it. Yeah. But I guarantee you that a lot of the electrical plants, all these things are connected into the overall internet in various ways. And yes, all of those things are vulnerable. Very scary. Um, yeah, it's very scary. Yeah. Very, very scary. And I think we should be spending a significant portion of our defense budget in that direction and a little bit less on the latest fighter plane or the latest submarine. Right, or the or the one point nine trillion dollar <laughs> relief plan or stimulus plan. So, uh, Afghanistan. What's going on in Afghanistan? So, Afghanistan. Um, President Trump uh, negotiated uh, withdrawal, the surrender of the Taliban. Uh, no one believes anything else. He told Khalid, He told told his negotiators, "Just get us out. Get us out. You know, so it doesn't look so terrible." Um, he tried to pull all the troops out before. Um, he left office but was not successful. And now President Biden is trying to re-examine that situation because the Taliban have not kept their agreement. Big surprise. And two, you know, what happens? It's quite clear that if we pull out all of our troops, the government of, of um, in Afghanistan, there was elected government, will fall to the Taliban. Women will be brought back into the Middle Ages. And everything we spent money and time on will be destroyed in a, in a moment. Afghanistan. On the other hand, how many years can we send men, send men to fight and die in Afghanistan? Right. It's a very difficult situation. You know, it's e- either situation is bad um, because we're talking about you know some of the worst people. The Taliban are literally, um, you know, thinking in terms of the Middle Ages, their views of women, the views of so many things that we believe in are, are really in in that direction more than anything else. And um, if they gain control, that's what's going to happen. So, yeah, very tough, very tough. I wouldn't want to be the one making this decision at all. Right. Sometimes I think I know better than the president. This time, no idea what I would do. Yeah. No. Well, of course, uh, the these uh, mobsters and gangsters that are running the country. It's it's about like like fifty percent of them across the globe, unfortunately. So, uh, let's move to Iraq. Right. So Iraq is a good news story, at least for the moment. Uh, the Pope has been visiting Iraq the last two days. Um, there used to be a very large Christian community in Iraq of about three or four million. Most of them have been pushed out, certainly first um, after the, uh, we invaded Iraq and the secular violence pushed a lot of the Christians out. And then, of course, once ISIS showed up, ISIS showed up in one town and gave the Christians 24 hours to leave, convert to Islam, or be beheaded. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's a, it's a it's a community that has gone from three to four million to three hundred thousand at this point. But um, the Pope has gone there. Uh, he took a risk. Um, I would say some people would put, say there's a X on his back. He's, he's certainly what's left of ISIS and everything else. Um, but the reality is he's had at least until now a, a marvelous visit. Uh, it's been refreshing. Um, it's just all good news. And you know, like the embattled Christian community in Iraq is certainly. Um, enjoyed his visit and have made them feel like maybe there's a future. So, a little good news. I don't think it'll last very long, but at least for the moment. And of course, you know, again, it says something about this Pope who seems to fear nothing, whether it's from a, um ideological standpoint or theocratic standpoint where he's willing to, to go to new grounds or personal safety where he's willing to go to places that many others would not dare go to. Well, among others, certainly the Christians have been persecuted, so it's Good on that news. Uh, good on that front, anyhow, to have that kind of a support from the uh, from the Pope, Mark. I always appreciate 
your commentary here on the show. Again, uh, HistoryCentral.com is the name of the website. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to be visiting uh, with uh, Larry Reed. He's the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government does provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website nadckids.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in the commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning, Bob. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. Your listeners can learn a lot about us by visiting our website at fee.org. There they'll see a daily uh, roster of new commentary on current events and history and economics. We also host programs for high school and college students designed to inspire and educate them in ideas of Individual liberty, private property, free markets, and personal character. Terrific organization. I've been to some of the national meetings, and it's just so inspiring to see young people embracing the ideas of liberty and personal responsibility. Again, visit fee.org, F-E-E dot org. Uh, Larry, you wrote a piece called Lessons for the Telegraph for the Biden Administration. I hope they'll read it, but (laughs) maybe you could tell us about it. Okay. Well, you know, there are signs already that the Biden administration is 
cooking up schemes to support uh, what they think are the industries of the future, uh, especially in the field of energy. Uh, they've killed the Keystone Pipeline because they think that uh, renewables and wind energy and so forth are going to be uh, what we should invest in. But there's a history here of the government uh, thinking it knows what the future holds and then squandering money only to be proven wrong. Mm. And uh, the article that you're referring to, Bob, was about the uh, early telegraph, which emerged in the 1840s. Most Americans may not know that the federal government subsidized and controlled the very first telegraph wire. It mm. wasn't invented by them. It was uh, the whole system of dots and dashes, for example, uh, was invented by Samuel Morse. But the government ran the first line, uh, telegraph line, from Washington to Baltimore, it was a disaster. It, it, it stagnated at best and had to be privatized. And um, needless to say, had no innovation. In other words, uh, that what was the motivation to try and make things better, to improve things? It certainly didn't exist at all when it comes to bu government bureaucrats. No, that's right. It lost money every single month. Uh, after a little over a year, uh, the uh, expenditures of the government telegraph operation exceeded revenue by six to one, mm. but sometimes, uh, some months it was 10 to one, and uh, bureaucrats just couldn't imagine what uses might people, uh, that people might have for the telegraph, so they didn't uh, take risks, they didn't, uh, they just weren't creative like private entrepreneurs have to be, or they fail. So what happened as a consequence? The government decided to kind of uh, you know, wait, you wiped his hands of the whole uh, affair and turned it over to private enterprise. What, were the, what was the consequence? As soon as it was privatized, because the government didn't know what to do with it, uh, uh, and uh, the Telegraph showed so much promise, uh, private entrepreneurs had strong incentives to improve and uh, market the product. Just 15 years after they uh, privatized the Telegraph, the cost of construction and the rates for service were as little as one-tenth of the original rates established by the federal government. Hmm. So, uh, you know, it got better and cheaper, which is historically what happens when competitive private enterprise runs anything. I can't think of anything in the history of the world where government took over and promptly became uh, better and cheaper. Happy you mentioned that. I mean, can you think about what happened with Solyndra and some of the uh, escapades during the... Uh uh, Obama administration to try and uh, make things better for us when it comes to alternative energy. Right now, you'd mentioned alternative energy, but I think about things like health care. Right now, we have the government heavily involved in health care. The consequences, we have prices that are spiraling out of control, uh, quite frankly, in my opinion, needlessly. Are you there? Oh, oh yeah. I thought I lost you there for a second. No, I was just mentioning that the uh, cost of health care is spiraling out of control, and I think yeah. it's in large part because of the, the uh, government involvement. Yeah, absolutely, and this is a pattern over and over again. Uh, government tends to politicize things when it takes it over, uh, and that raises the cost. And they also don't have the incentive to think in terms of how do we make this better so we can improve the bottom line? How can we uh, uh, serve customers better? I mean... You know, it's like uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles. Uh, mm -hmm. they're, they, they're stamping papers and pushing people out the door, but they don't spend much time and thought thinking about how to make uh, a thriving, flourishing, profitable bottom line. 
So when you're thinking about right now what's happening with regard to alternative energy, any recommendations for the Biden administration? Yeah, I think what the Biden administration should do is let the market tell us what the future holds. Uh, That's what markets are for. Uh, They convey immense information through the price system. And uh, it has served us well when it's been allowed to operate in the past. The idea that somehow politicians, when we put them in charge, they'll, they'll know what the uh, future should look like is, is absolutely preposterous. I don't know why anybody buys into that a ridiculous notion. There's nothing about becoming an official in government that suddenly makes you uh, uh, a better foreseer of the future. So this is, I think, such an important point, and it's an important economic point as well, and that is that the uh, the market itself has infinite knowledge and immediate knowledge that the bureaucrats just cannot possibly obtain, especially in time, in order to make good decisions. The market understands all this and why it's very chaotic. It makes these decisions and, and it, uh, establishes prices, establishes supply, and so forth, and actually, uh, in a way, operates in the most beautiful way that the government can't possibly operate. And it's also true that uh, because nobody knows the future, the market doesn't get everything exactly right right from the beginning. In fact, uh, there have been many uh, failed investments in the private sector. But the beauty of the private sector and the free market is that it tends to be self-correcting. Whereas mistakes in government tend to be institutionalized, subsidized, they go on forever, <laughs> and they're, not, they're never or rarely corrected. Yeah. But in the private enterprise uh, marketplace, if you make investments in something for which there's little demand, the correcting mechanism will hit you like a, a brick wall in the form of, uh, uh, of loss of uh, money and, and lack of profits, and you're out of business. Uh, no question. Lessons from the Telegraph. For the Biden administration, I only hope that they'll read your column because they have so much to learn. There I read again the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. I encourage you to visit the website fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure indeed. Coming up, I'm going to be visiting with Jim McTagg. Jim is the author of several books. He was the former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief. Murder Mysteries are really fun reads. Uh, the first is called Follow the Leader, and its sequel is Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more of the Bob Harden Show, here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. 
Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, I hope to check out Choice Social. It's a new, refreshing social networking platform. I use it, and I think you'll find it very interesting. Go to choicesocial.us uh, to get the app. Uh, you can also find it on the App Store if you do a, do a search. Uh, we have with us Jim McTaggy again, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of several books. His latest two are Follow the Leader and Shake the Money Tree, two great murder mysteries located in Washington, D.C. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, by the way, inside the Beltway, we're going to have a peak at summer this week to the 70s, and then they're predicting uh, snow in the uh, final two weeks of March. Uh, the bottom line being, I wish I was in Naples with you until, <laughs> until at least April. So when are you going to see the cherry blossoms? Oh, boy, yeah, the, the poor trees are uh, getting fall, fooled into blooming. You know, they'll bloom, and then yeah. the, the frost will come in and kill them. So yeah. this might be a very bad year to visit the cherry blossoms no, that, in Washington, D.C. Yeah, that sometimes happens, Jim. So, I mean, we just had this horrible stimulus package pass, in my opinion. It wasn't even necessary, but... Uh, even parts of it could have passed and might have been helpful. But uh, now we've got this HR1 kind of hanging fire, and unbelievably, it could actually pass. Tell us about it. Oh, yeah, it's called For the People Act. You know, this is a perennial bill by the Democrats. The, the, uh, it, it passed, uh, I, th I think, three or four years ago in the, in the House and was crushed by the Senate. And essentially what it is is a, an attempt you know, it, it was, you know, um, pr President Trump was premature in accusing the Democrats of stealing the election. Uh, it it didn't happen in the last election, but the Democrats want to make sure it happens in the next election. Mm. So they're passing this bill, which essentially takes uh, a constitutional right away from states to run their own elections 
centers most of the decision making in Washington and it essentially makes it easier for illegal immigrants uh, to vote. So it's um, it's just a horrible bill, 800 pages. Now in the bill, there are some really uh, good items. I think items that both parties have agreed on in the past Mm -hmm. regarding transparency. You know, who's giving money? Who's behind these uh, secretive PACs? You know, you, you know. As a former journalist, I believe that sunlight really is the best disinfectant. Mm-hmm. But having said that, uh, the Democrats in the last midterm election they lost 13 seats in the House, which was a total surprise. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they have an advantage in the House, 222 to 213 right now, nine votes. Uh, they're afraid of losing that in in the midterm elections, and they want to make sure it doesn't happen. So they're they're passing this uh, horrendous bill. Yeah. So uh, even if it passed, I mean, would this pass muster with the Supreme Court? Well, probably not. (laughs) You know, but, you know, I don't know how many years of litigation elements of it would not pass muster. Some of it would pass muster, but Mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, you know, the Constitution is pretty clear on on, uh, uh, the limits that Congress has in in dictating to the states uh, regarding elections. Yeah. Um, Second of all, the the the, the uh, House can certainly pass the bill, but it won't require sixty percent of the Senate to pass the bill. Well, that well, then the, uh, the uh, Democrats in the Senate are trying to get rid of the filibuster. You know, the Senate filibuster could tie this bill up uh, for the rest of uh, Biden's term. Yeah. Um, so, this, so they could get rid of the filibuster. They have enough clout to do that. You know, the reason that this, this is probably the most consequential uh, midterm election since the Republican Revolution in 1994, uh, with the, when the contract with America, Newt Gingrich's plan, swept the nation and, 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 and propelled the uh, Republicans into power in the House, the... Um, uh, the reason this is so consequential is um, Kamala Harris, the vice president. She's totally green. She's unprepared. Uh, she showed what an awful politician she was in the uh, primaries. And uh, Joe Biden's choice of her was a political gimmick. I mean, she's really not qualified for the job. Yeah. I think the public realizes that. And uh, you know, there's a good chance that she could end up succeeding uh, Joe Biden in office, right? Um, and because he's had health, health issues his entire life, I think that frightens most of the public and the and the, and the Democrats. Uh, Want to make sure that she has an easy time of it um, should this come to pass? Yeah. So uh, I guess my hope is. I guess my my question was leading up to the hope that uh, there's no way that this bill could actually pass. At least the way it's constructed right now. Uh, but, but, you know, elements of it which are inimical to our democracy could pass. I mean, because if the, the Democrats have enough muscle to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate, they, they can do that. So they can ram this bill through just like they ran through uh, the stimulus bill. Now, now there were some changes made in this. Didn't Joe Manchin say that there's no way he's going to get rid of I mean, he, he could be the most important person in the United States Senate right now. He, he is the most important person in the United States Senate right now. Uh, but the question is, 
will other moderates in the party step forward? Will they, you know, will they, will they find their, their guts or will they uh, cower in the face of the uh, cancel culture of the uh, radical left? You know, um, uh, more moderates than Joe Manchin have to come forward in the Republican, in the Democratic Party to convince me that uh, they're not going to ram this bill through. It's so interesting, Jim. It's all, I, I, to me, on the face of it, and of course, I could be a little bit naive, but I, 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 can't, I couldn't even believe that somehow, some way, this uh, stimulus package could make it through $1.9 trillion, especially in the face of all the good news economically that we saw just the week before with 400,000 jobs gained and uh, unemployment down to 6.3%. How could they possibly pass this bill? It's just unbelievable. But they did. In the face of all, yeah, this is another uh, mid-year. You know, it's buying votes uh, because uh, you know the Republicans are right on the point that a, that a, a bill half that size would have been adequate because the economy is coming back, and you don't want to discourage uh, people from returning to work. Uh, plus, the vaccine uh, rollout is gathering steam. I finally got a shot. Uh, my wife, who is 60, who is getting a shot this weekend at a, at a drugstore, I've talked to neighbors. I mean, there are lots of people who have got shots who are scheduled for shots. The point being that life is getting back to normal, mm-hmm. and the economy will recover a lot more quickly, I think, than people anticipate. So uh, you're right. This, it, the stimulus is uh, too much too late. Too much, too late. Well said. So, uh, parenthetically, just and slightly off topic, but uh, any reactions to the uh, vaccine itse- itself? I mean, I've, I've read about some possible uh, uh, reactions to it that are pretty negative. Yeah, uh, I had no reaction. You know, I have a um, a daughter-in-law who's in her 30s who, who got two shots because she works uh, uh, on the front lines of uh, health care. Uh, she was sick as a dog for 36 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, her grandmother, who is 97, got got the same shots and had no reaction at all. So uh, younger people have a reaction in, I think, about 30% of the cases. I, uh, my Another daughter's in-laws, who are in their uh, 70s, uh, both got the shots, and they, got, they had sore arms for uh, a day or two, and that was it. Mm-hmm. So... Um, you know, it's it's no reason to avoid the shot. Uh, I mean, I had a reaction to the shingles vaccine. I was sick for uh, a day with a you know slight fever, flu-like symptoms, and uh, I'm very happy I got the shingles vaccine. So yeah. it's the same thing here. Uh, the side effects are not, you know, the the the, um, the side effects are a lot better than uh, going into the hospital and dying on a ventilator. Uh, of course. So, Jim, uh, last word. Uh, is this bill, uh, H.R. 1, going to pass? You know, I think it will. Uh, oh. I think uh, there will be some changes, but I think it will pass and we'll have uh, Supreme Court challenges. I, the, the, uh, the Democrats are hell-bent on, on this. Uh, they want a one-party system in the U.S., uh, they want to, you know, the the Republican Party um, would be um, really in a horrible situation if this bill passes for for a decade at least. Exactly, Jim. I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. And again, I want to re- recommend. I've read both of your murder mysteries. They are outstanding. 
Uh, follow the leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I hope you get a copy, read them. They are really fun reads. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks, Jim. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Tomorrow, we're going to visit with Kathleen Pasadomo, our state senator, who's right now, they're, they're going through the process of passing legislation up in Tallahassee. We'll visit with Boo Mortensen. We'll find out what's new with Boo. Seton Motley is the founder and president of Less Government. And my wife, Linda, will be joining us as well. Always appreciate her commentary as well. Always appreciate your feedback on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.